Seven Alive. Back at it again. Yeah, we're back. Got to put my radio voice on. We're back. Back. So much. So, so much things. Yeah. I was going to say so much things have happened. So much so, things. So many things have happened since we last uh, recorded. Yeah. Lots of, things. lots of news. Old I, events. I don't have a list, but I will bring up the most exciting thing for me is the announcement of the new Marvel, no, just DC Universe. Oh. They're calling the DCU. Yeah. And all the announcements that James Gunn spoke of slipping jimmy he came out with his whole slate yeah slate and jimmy yeah and he says there's more to come regarding if if it it seems like he's taking from uh, what marvel's doing with the sagas and he's calling it a chapter one gods and monsters probably be equivalent to like the infinity saga yeah yeah so all of these entries into this one chapter of gods and monsters we have like a new superman movie uh, Batman movie with we finally gonna see like an, another Robin for the first time in forever, and then there's all there's a bunch of like other kind of random things that he's gonna do an Amanda Waller film with Viola Davis, and there's another Green Lantern project that's gonna be a show. It's gonna be interesting. I'm excited for that because I'm a huge Green Lantern fan. And then a couple things I've never even paid attention to or heard of. One's gonna be an animated show. Another one's gonna be. It almost seems like a Suicide Squad kind of film or television show. I'm not sure. And then he talked about things like Todd Phillips' Joker sequel and Matt Reeves' The Batman sequel. And those are going to be called Elseworlds, which is a page right out of the comics, which is essentially their DC's term for multiverse. Mm-hmm. And I'm excited about all, everything. And it seems like DC is going to finally be on track to go toe-to-toe with Marvel and build their little universe out, which people have just been waiting and waiting and waiting for. It only took them 30 years. Um, but I'm very excited because I'm a huge DC fan. I think arguably probably even more than Marvel. So I'm excited to see what's to come. I'm just excited to have direction (laughs) with, without feeling like things are going to fall by the wayside and hopefully Hopefully people respond to these DC films like they have with Marvel and what Discovery has, I think, purchased Warner Brothers for will become a wild success because, like, I think there's a lot of money there to be to be made, <laughs> you know? Absolutely. And I, I know people, a lot of people are growing weary of uh, superhero films, and it seems like the ones that they've selected in the way that they're going to try to attempt them kind of takes into consideration the weary dreariness of superhero movies and is trying to do something a little bit different, a little bit like maybe we haven't seen this before. I mean, also just with the fact that, you know, these are going to be DC heroes and not Marvel heroes. And anyway, I'm excited. Very excited. What's your number one piece of news since we've last recorded? Not James Gunn related? Yeah, just in general. (laughs) A couple interesting new video games came out including uh the dead space remake Mm. which was spooky yeah stuff's happening man the world's turning a lot of news really scott just announced a release date for gladiator 2 yeah starring paul mescal right yeah tim chalamet says austin butler's pretty scary on the set of dune part 2 good (laughs) all kinds of news i'm not surprised that tim's scared in related news austin butler's gonna stop speaking like elvis (laughs) It's going to be a process. <laughs> You've seen a couple movies. We should talk about those. Even Oh, shit. And we're probably, we'll probably come back to them. Yeah, absolutely. But you saw Skinamarink. I saw Skinamarink. Which is this wild, low budget. It was made for $15,000, and it's grossed over a million, I think, by now. It's, it's kind of like a paranormal activity kind of hit, where it's like super low budget, but it's made a lot of money. I have so much I could say about that movie. I could do a I could do a cast on it. Maybe we should. Maybe we should, Stephen. And you saw Puss in Boots. I saw Puss in Boots. It was incredible. Yeah, I mean, this is like I still not quite Spider Verse like legendary status, but it's like right on the heels of Spider Verse. I think we'll probably do an episode on that. I just need yeah. to. See, I want to see that movie first. We will. And you saw I saw Broker. You saw Broker. Oh, you saw the Plane movie. Oh my God. That's what it was. 
Has it been that long since we've done a cast? Yes. What's it called? It's called Plane. It was called Plane. <laughs> With Gerard Butler. Uh, was it? You said it was like fine. It was like a. It was a movie. Yeah, it was a. It was a movie. It's like the kind of thing that comes on in the mid two thousands on a lazy Sunday, and FX is playing like X two, and like the the Chronicles of Riddick, and then Plane comes on. Yeah. And you're like Plane. Yeah. So it's it's a it's a dad movie. Mike Coulter was cool. Nice yeah. to see him again after Luke Cage. Yeah, I love Mike Coulter. Did I, we? I'm just bummed he's not Luke Cage yeah. as far as it stands right now. And did I mention on this cast yet that I did see Megan? Megan? M3? No, we haven't talked about that. Another movie I'd love to do a cast on. Really? Yeah. I mean, you know what would be fun is if we just packaged some of those together because you're never going to see probably those movies i will but i i could talk about those movies i will probably see skin and marink i have <laughs> absolutely zero desire to see megan a week after so i i thought it was going to be terrible but apparently it was just as campy as uh malignant because it was a james wan production uh, yeah. produced by not directed by i remember when we saw the trailer for the menu it was in front of the menu we were laughing oh yeah like so oh, no no sorry it was before glass onion we were just dying laughing, going, this is the stupidest thing I've ever seen. It's not every day that I audibly groan at a And trailer. we should have known. We yeah. should have known that it was intentionally It was basically, way. it was like Malignant. We did a Malignant cast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I love, but it, that was also during the pandemic when HBO had it streaming at the same time as it was in the theaters. Yeah. And I pulled it up and live oh, watched yeah, it. Yeah, we did live react. I live watched it <laughs> while we recorded it's batshit crit now so megan didn't go as hard in the paint which it could have and i think it, there's a cutout there um that did but they they dumbed it down and it, it's nice sometimes horror it plays better when you leave things to the imagination mm-hmm. but it also got immediately greenlit for a sequel so it's so funny seeing these movies just like on the on a micro budget or a, or a small budget kind of uh hit at the perfect time and place and just be a massive success you know yeah relatively a massive mm-hmm. success so Last of Us is popping off. Oh my God! The Last of Us is popping off, I and I knew it would. I, I love it. I knew the second they announced it, it would be their new flagship IP. Just really love that. Uh, that's what I'm living for right now. Is mainly yeah. to watch the world react to the Last of Us because I've been a fan <laughs> for ten years, and it's like yeah, and it's already been picked up for season two. Yep. And adapting part two is gonna be wild. Yeah. For so many reasons. Anyway, I watched that '90s show. On Netflix. Oh yeah, I like I like that '70s show. Yeah, it's funny because I can't tell you one thing about that '70s show. It it's a lot like Seinfeld to me, where it's like it's almost like a show about nothing. Mm-hmm. Although Seinfeld's more memorable. Yeah. But I remember laughing, and that '90s show is just as forgettable, but also good. It, it's made by the same creators. It's like the exact same setup. Right. Uh, so it was like it was cute. It was good. It was a little bit. I feel like it was a little bit more teeny bopper than 70s show us yeah did they bring back most of the original cast except for the one dude yeah except for danny masterson <laughs> who was omega fucked yeah <laughs> yeah super sad because danny masterson was one of my favorite parts of that 70s show and he's canceled now it's always the ones you most expect <laughs> hide <laughs> anyway uh that reminds me one other thing that would be fun to mention at the front of the cast especially in recent history because you mentioned Seinfeld, is that crazy Twitch stream? I don't even know how to describe it. We were we were talking about it yesterday. I work. can describe it very precisely. Well, no, like how it's done. Oh yeah. Like I don't know. We don't, I have no idea how it's done. Well, it's just coded AI generated prompts and then put to AI generated images. It's AI, and I've seen in conjunction with that. So basically, just to summarize it very quickly, is it using Chat GPT? Um, it was before. They started developing it years ago before all this. I did a little research before all this AI popped off, so I don't think it's using ChatGPT. In fact, it's it's a homebrew of AI software. That I wonder is, if ChatGPT could do better because that... Yeah, it could. It, well, I mean, in terms of scripts, it could. I've seen so much yeah. AI content. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It could... We're on like I don't the even brink. Think you and I have talked about that yet. No, we we've haven't. never. Talked we need about to do it. a cast though, because we're we're literally like right on the verge of the event horizon where we're gonna peer into. Oh, that's the interesting because I feel the opposite. What do you mean? It, it, to me, ChatGPT is like a gimmick. Well, 
and I hate it. It's like, and I think it's, it's stupid. It's the precursor to what will be the next evolution in entertainment, maybe, in my opinion. Maybe, and not not in necessarily in a good way. Like I'm not like writing the the fad, you know. Yeah. But the things I'm watching it do, and tangentially as well, in terms of deep fakes and specifically uh, voice emulation, yeah, AI deep fakes of the voice. Yeah. Every day I'm seeing more clips because I watch a lot of streaming, live streaming, in a separate tab. You know, not like active. I'm not a degenerate. But I'm hearing things that literally famous people have not said, but they're saying in AI voice emulation, and it's insane. Yeah. And so we're like, we're, I, I get it. we're like entering Black Mirror territory for real. Like we've been thinking about, oh, we'll get there one day. We're here now. <laughs> we're on the edge. We're on the we're on the bleeding edge. I see what you're saying. I just I don't think it's going to get as Black Mirror as Black Mirror, where it's like, yeah. See, everybody gives me that look i don't know i'm just ready for it i'm like bring on the apocalypse man <laughs> skynet's like right there skynet <laughs> oh man Did, I, I sent you that 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 video of the the people who created that metal that could yeah. melt and then reform that back real in, yes it's real i saw that my first thought was this is just like a lego stop motion yeah not real no no it's real that's crazy they figured out it's an ai or it's a it's a it was it used the word robot but it's how a is that metal possible? it's a metal robot that can melt from its form and then reform back into its original form but did it move <laughs> yeah i think so because i wasn't sure if it moved on its own or if they just kind of like pushed it it, it the went cage. through the cage yeah because otherwise it's just like it's just something that can like melt and retake its shape that's kind of cool <laughs> it'll be cool when it can like think? shoot sarah connor yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and come for her son god yeah terminator she is really good it's james cameron baby <laughs> no it wasn't yes it was Oh, I thought it was Terminator 1. He did Terminator 1 and 2. Oh, I thought he That's just why did they one. call him the sequel king, because he did T2 and um, Aliens. Waiting for Titanic 2, where it comes back out of the water. I heard James Cameron just finally, today or yesterday or something, admitted that Jack could have survived. Oh, uh, yeah. I've been seeing stuff like that. But he's been, he's been denying it for like he's been 30, denying it? 30 years. Yeah, or 25 years or whatever. That's the point. You know, it's like. He finally admitted that Jack could have fit on the door or whatever, that <laughs> she's so floating. That's funny. Yeah. You're seeing that next week, right? Uh, yeah, I want to. I don't know how long it's playing. You should. I need to get tickets now, probably. It's probably going to be booked. We're actually here to talk about something else <laughs> today. <laughs> something insane. Something so insane. Yeah. Uh, and, and beautiful and lovely at the same time. We're talking about the new Alejandro Iñárritu, Iñárritu. film called Bardo. A false chronicle of a handful of truths. Yes. I could not have remembered that. <laughs> was it his first since The Revenant, right? Yeah, his first since The Revenant. Dang, that was a little while ago. Yeah, 2017, I think. So what's he just been cooking for five years? Well, we'll talk about that. Yeah. So first, before we get into it, can we read off the cast I'll list? do my best, Stephen, because there's some yep. some uh, yeah. Mexican names yes. in here. <laughs> there are some heavily Hispanic names. <laughs> some Mexican names. Mexican. We can say that, you right? You Mexican't. <laughs> yeah. You Mexican can't pronounce them. Our main character, our protagonist, as Christopher Nolan would call him, is Silverio, <laughs> uh, played by Daniel. If this is a hard G, it's going to be Jimenez. If it's a soft G, it's Jimenez. I think it's Jimenez. Jimenez. Yeah. Cacho. Fantastic. Never seen him before, or I guess any of these people. <laughs> His wife, Lucia, is played by Griselda Siciliani. Man. <laughs> This is my least favorite part of our I know. Keep going. Just go, go fast. Go fast. His daughter, Camilla, is played by Zemena La Madrid. You're doing great. His son, Lorenzo, yes. played by... What is this word, man? There's a... <laughs> Iker? Iker. Iker? <laughs> Sanchez? Solano? Listen, I have a lot of love and respect for the Mexican community. So do I. No, this so is not I, me being we're disrespectful. We're not making fun right, of Mexicans. Man. This is This is a farce for me. I'm the farce. I'm the joke. The joke's me. You're Joaquin Phoenix, basically. I am Folia Doi Troy. Is that the name? Of the second film? Oh, yeah, yeah. Folia Doi. No, I don't know. I'm just going to read off a few more names because that's the family. Who was Lissandro? I don't know. Maybe that was his father. I think it was. That was Luis Corturier. Corturier. <laughs> Maria is played by Luis Jimenez. Uh, his cameraman, Martin, is played by Andres Almeida. 
Um, I'm looking through names that I recognize. His friend Luis is played by Francisco Rubio. Uh, and then there's some historical cameos. Hernan Cortez is played by Ivan Masue. Historical cameos. Yeah. That's such a good one. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how deep you want me to go in here. That's fine. We're good. Okay. Let's talk about Alejandro and who he is. Yeah. Mr. He's a director. He He's is. one of who you call all the time. You're like, there's the Mexican big the three. The big three. Yeah, the big three. I didn't coin that. Okay, whatever. <laughs> it's uh, Iñárritu and Guillermo del Toro and... Cuaron. Yeah, Alfonso Cuaron. Didn't they all win Oh, um, like Oscars or something? Is that why they call them that? I think it is. In the last 10 years, I think they've all won. Oh. Yeah, Cuaron had gravity. Del Toro had the fish man. <laughs> <laughs> it's the shape of water. The shape of water. The way of water. And... Uh, Iñárritu, did he win for um, Birdman or The Revenant? Birdman. Did he? he or no. Did... Oh, no. He... Did Birdman win? I don't know if it did. It doesn't really matter. But I know that Leonardo finally won an Oscar for Revenant. Yeah. So there's that. Birdman was my favorite movie of the year. And I think it won because I think I remember being really happy that year. Academy Award for Best Picture, which the ceremony was 2015. Award for Best Cinematography. Did he really sweep? Best directing? Yeah, I just don't remember uh, the past. Best picture. Original screenplay? Best picture. Yeah, he. I. that was the first one I uh, saw. He's, he won like five, apparently. That's crazy. Yeah. I, I haven't seen Birdman. I feel like the odd man out here. And it, yeah, well, yeah. Birdman is insane. I mean, it's it's a it's a simulated one-shot take throughout the whole film. Like I mean, 1917. There's like one or two cuts. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and isn't Revenant the same way? Is it in one take? You know what it might be, or at least mostly. Yeah. So, but Birdman was really, I think, the first one I've seen do it on that on that scale on that level, mm-hmm. and it blew me away. Um, and it had a really interesting story as well. But just as far, just a feat of filmmaking, I think people were talking when that movie came out. They were talking, talking about people. Yeah. <laughs> and I think there's a lot of parallels actually with Birdman and Bardo. <clears throat> Yeah. Um, in in theme and filmmaking yeah. uh, style as well. Absolutely. That we can talk about later. But yeah, Revenant was good, obviously, if you haven't seen Revenant. All natural lighting, the cinematography is insane. One of one of uh, Inorito's, uh kind of trademarks is he loves to shoot on wide lenses and follow characters around on like Steadicams. That Terrence that really, Malick vibe. Really gives it the sense of scale because you, you have your protagonist, your subject in the middle of the frame and they appear kind of big because they're shot on a wide lens, which makes the features of that subject to be a little bit exaggerated. Mm. And, but you also get the sense of space and scale of the, the physical space that the subject is in and it's really amazing. And then it's usually colored very well Yeah. Uh, in post-production the color plays a huge part. Birdman was very like uh, saturated and, and vibrant. vibrant and lively, and uh, Bardo was as well. Honestly, uh, Revenant was a little bit like darker and, and moody and gritty, but still also vibrant. But yeah, I think it's it's kind of become like a, a signature of of Inuritu's, uh work. Did you ever see Beautiful? Right, twenty ten. No, I did not actually. Have you seen it? No. I'm the odd man out there. I want to see it. Of course I'd want to see that. We are odd man out. And those are his English language films, right? Or he also, he goes back before that as well. He did Babel. Oh, I've seen Babel. Not the biggest fan of Babel. Looks like he did 21 Grams in 2003. Yeah, I've seen that too. And then I think before that, he was making some Spanish language films. So this is like a return to form for him in many ways. Not form, but return to his past. Heritage? Heritage. His his home. Yeah. Why don't you talk about what Bardo is about? What is Bardo about? Yeah. Give me the hard questions. The log line. If you... Oh, you mean like literally what's the plot? Yeah, what's the plot? Okay. Our main character... Is a journalist. He's a journalist, documentarian. Documentarian. Who likes playing with form, and he makes some kind of meta, what do you call it, docufiction. Yeah. So he, uh, one of the things that happens is he likes to uh, implant himself into his narratives, 
And so the whole thing on that level alone is kind of a meta story because you're not sure really what's happening the yeah. whole time. What's or, real. Or if what you're watching is real, yeah. Essentially, full spoilers moving forward. Um, it's revealed in the last 30 minutes that he's in a coma, unresponsive. And so the recontextual... Well, sp- sp- spoilers. <laughs> yeah. Re- it, well, recontextualizes the whole film and that he. Yeah. this is like... I like to call it a death dream, but we don't really know if he's dead in the coma. You don't know if he's going to die even when the movie ends. Yeah, but he's revisiting essentially his, his life. life. Yeah, and his family and his friends and his work. So the film that you've watched, you could be viewing it sort of as an existential crisis mm-hmm. or a middle-aged crisis. It wears its themes yeah. on its sleeve. <laughs> it Yeah, and so you never really know what the character, the main character is if like Gabe said, if what he's experiencing is real or if it's part of the narrative that he's constructing in his mind, or if it's part of the narrative that he's constructed in his art, some of it is very obviously not real. Yes. Well, there's a lot of, yes, there's a lot of not real magical realism, magical realism or, or surrealist moments, mm-hmm. um, which we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about. Yeah. But he's dealing with a lot of things and I guess we're already full spoilers at this point. He's dealing with losing a child with his wife. He's dealing with his relationship with his mom and his dad. Mm-hmm. He's dealing with the effect that the loss of that child has had on his relationships with his, his actual kids. What else? Uh, well, the two, two big things that are kind of connected. One is his relationship with his mother country, yes. which is Mexico. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's massive and it's yeah. kind of the through line to the whole thing. Yeah. But also part of that is his relationship with his work as a storyteller. As a meta docufiction storyteller, you yeah. know? And he's both you know in and outside of his relationship with his country and friends and family as a Mexican. Also just as a human, he's he's calling into question so many things. A lot of it is very personal to him, you know, like what is my identity? You know, as a as a person, as a human, and as I'm, an aging, yeah, man, yeah, he's aging. You know, he's coming to terms with his own mortality, literally and figuratively, but also like just his own identity. Like, what is his story to tell? Because he tells his life is telling other people's stories and often inserting mm-hmm. himself into their stories. So it was kind of like Big Fish, in yeah, that way. Yeah, the, Tim Burton's. Yeah. You know, Ewan McGregor. There are a lot of things I was thinking through this film in terms of influences. Yeah. Or at least homage or like maybe yeah. unintentional. I don't know exactly, but really quick. One of the other things that was playing out in his relationship with is his wife as well. Like there's a, there's a his wife plays a huge part in his life. And so, yeah, there's every like 15, 20 minutes in this film. There's you get a new we're tackling not only a new subject matter, but also like straight up. There's a conversation or a monologue or something where there's like, here's what we're dealing with now. Yeah. And that was really I let me just say that I, I loved this movie mm-hmm. and I don't know, I wouldn't call it, you know, in your best, but as someone who likes more artsy films yeah, <laughs> and I haven't even seen the tree of life, but you mentioned that when we were watching it Yeah, there, I love, I've seen some other Malick films and there's just this, this sprawling kind of yeah. overwhelming, sometimes self-indulgent, dramatic deliberation at times pontificating about everything about existential mm-hmm. dread all the way down to things that are very tangible and grounded and real and it's kind of a mess meaning of life yeah it's very messy at times but i love that and the fact that it's so long it really takes its time yeah. with a lot of that yeah i also love this movie but i i didn't love it for the first half of it I was very confused and yeah. I didn't know what it was doing and I didn't start to love it until it started answering all the questions that I had. I thought it was going to be the the thing that I often do not like in film, which is like just a character piece, mm. like another, uh, nothing interesting going on, <laughs> another kind of PT Anderson, David O. Russell kind of film that I just don't care about the movie and I don't care about the people in it. But when in the last 40 minutes you get, all of this closure and it answers all the questions you had, the lingering. It's like all the doors become open and he unlocks everything for you and, and, and it plays out in the most beautiful way. Yeah. Well, there there is definitely closure in terms of what precisely is going on. Yes. But thematically, there's still so many things, Yeah. you know, left that leave you thinking. Um, and we're here. We're back. 
for for uh, the new segment we've been doing for the last what ten or so podcasts, maybe less. Yes, where we have a little interlude. Three, uh, four, five. Yeah, not that many. A little a little section here, a little respite in the middle of the podcast where we talk about. We just give you a little bit, a little something. <laughs> God, <laughs> some music. Little music recommendation, something we've been listening to music a lot. Music recommendation recently. There you go. Yeah, a song, a song. So, what have you brought with for you? What have I brought to, to the podcast today? <laughs> uh, well, two, one, <laughs> three. <laughs> uh, I've been playing a lot of uh, this new Body Thief album. Body Thief is a very uh, Dance Gavin Dance esque band. Mm. So if you like that, uh, we did a Dance Gavin Dance cast. We did. Uh, recently. In, in the late 190s. <laughs> you can go like 40 back, scroll down a little bit. Yeah. If you're into this kind of uh, whatever you'd classify that as post. What's the song called? Well, the whole, I was just going to, first, I just wanted to drop the album because okay. I have a better wreck. Oh. Um, a song in particular. Okay. Um, separate from that. Very different vibe. There, It's an artist I've been a fan of for a while her name is Anna von Hauswolf mm. and her music I don't really know how to describe it it is somewhere European is it like but Anna, her thing her Anna? main her main thing is it's she uses an organ and she composes these often longer tracks that are very kind of ethereal or, and organic atmospheric sure organic that's funny that's a good one you're on a roll tonight I don't know what's going on um, but this track in particular is this haunting 12 minute cut called the truth the glow the fall off of her uh, 2018 i don't know if it's really considered an ep or an lp because it's only five tracks but the length is 47 minutes long it's a long it's an interesting i love music like that where the tracks are longer anyway this this track is haunting but it's also beautiful and if you want something if you want to like drown in some some sound for a little Mm. bit close your eyes and kind of just let it take you away I would highly recommend The Truth, The Glow, The Fall by Anna Von Hauswolf. Take me away. Are you going to play it here? Here's all 12 minutes. (laughs) That'd be epic. All right, now welcome back to Bardo. Welcome back. Let's get back into Bardo's Bardo and stuff. Here's Bardo. Bardo. The themes are impossible to answer, like existentialism. Like you can't answer the question of existence. Mankind has been trying to ask and answer that question for 
all of its existence. So, yeah, but yeah, the themes are super prominent. Like we have, like you said, mortality and there's, you know, states of psychology and identity and sexuality. Oh yeah. And like, like there, there is just so much to speak on. It's it, to me, this movie was almost like Alejandro and Yuritu kind of, like is almost kind of like a biopic about his own life. Yeah. Like a, a, an exaggerated biopic of his own life with mm-hmm. these surrealist or magical realist elements. Like you were saying, freaking wild. And I, I did not think I was going to like it as much as I did. I, if, neither did I, <laughs> if, if there, I know, right. I didn't, I, the other thing that sucks, like sucks about this film that honestly, I think did this film a disservice is that it didn't have a larger theatrical release. This should have been seen in a fucking movie theater. Yeah, I'm kicking myself. And well, no, it's not your fault. It's but not it was my fault. showing briefly at this. Sp- yeah, at it was there for like a week. five days. Yeah. It wasn't even there for like a week. It was, and but no, <laughs> but it's a Netflix film. It's on. You watch it streaming at home. Oh my gosh! It, you this should have been out of most films that came out this year or last year at this point. Yeah, this should have been a theatrical viewing. I read it was the first one they secured for a theatrical viewing, which is curious because it didn't have nearly the press of something like Glass Onion, you know? Yeah. And I I was like, oh, it's It showing. should have. Yeah. You know what? And the only reason I think it didn't is because it didn't have a recognizable American cast. Well, it's, or, yeah. Oh, no, I just, or, or like it, it was a foreign language. It's also just objectively not as, uh, I want to say accessible as something like Glass Onion. But if it was like Joaquin Phoenix or something... And everyone knows that he just came off the backs of Birdman and Revenant. That's true. This would have been, and it was an English-speaking film. Oh yeah. This would have been a. Ba- everyone would have been like freaking out about it. The fact <laughs> that the fact that it's foreign language and you don't recognize the cast and it's not all white people. Did this film? I think I think is the reason that this film didn't get as much press and recognition as it should have. Yeah, I don't think we'd even mentioned until just now that it is a Spanish, or maybe I we talked about all the you know, parts of the film about Mexican culture, but this film is, is in Spanish <laughs> subtitles the whole yeah, way through. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just don't even care about that anymore. Yeah. I don't like, I don't think about it cause I have subtitles on for everything. Yeah. Including Yellowstone, which and I'm watching. We also, also watch which fucking sucks by the way. <laughs> <laughs> we also watch a good bit of international filmmaking. Yeah. It's been a while since I'd seen a, a film in Spanish, I think, but yeah, it's been a while. it is a shame. But the nice thing about that is that Netflix is still arguably like the king of streaming in that space, I think. And so it's probably going to pull in some numbers that, you know, someone might just turn on Bardo and be like, oh, interesting. I don't know. I want to. I want to. I think the marketing for it. And and I think there's just there should have been so many other things going for this movie. Well, you you think so, too, especially after his last two films. Right. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. If it was. Where's the hype? Yeah. Yeah. The fact that it wasn't hyped more is baffling to me because it's just as good, I think. Well, as his last films, I'd play devil's advocate. No, no, in, in quality of 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 filmmaking and script and and acting, like the the, the, te- all the things, the technical <laughs> aspects of filmmaking, yeah. it's just as good. Yeah, I just don't think it is as good in the appealing sense to a more wide demographic. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, that's that's fair. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah. But let's let's talk about uh, more. More? Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I've, I've taken I've took more notes for Bardo than I've taken for anything. Wow. I actually so it's a two and a half hour movie, right? Or two thirty eight or something. It took me like four or five hours to watch because I was not only taking notes, but I was constantly looking up and crying. <laughs> no, I didn't really cry. Thinking. I, yeah, thinking, but also researching Mexican history. Mm. Like I, I did none of that. So so much of this film relies on you'll Mexican to, history. You'll have to educate me. Everything from the Mexican-American War. And like we said earlier, this film... All those things made zero sense to me. Yeah. So. It, it tackles a lot, but very little of it is subtle. Everything is kind of like mentioned directly, whether it's the theme or is it's like the events. Is everything that they said true? They're like, here's what they say happens. Here's what actually happened. These people were wiped out. You know. They- yeah. If they're talking about events, it's... I mean, as far as I could figure it's it's accurate you mm-hmm. know like they talked about the boy heroes yeah, yeah. dying that's, that's in the mexican-american was, war that's what i was talking about and fast i mean i don't really have a good read on mexican culture especially now you know i mean modern day so i don't know sure. when they say something like 
uh, Silverio is interviewing this one guy who's talking about the myth-making quality of the Mexican people and how they can turn this depressing tragedy into a triumphant mythic victory, mm -hmm. specifically regarding the boy hero story. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's accurate. You know, I don't know if that's a, a fair representation of the Mexican people. It may be, but it's all that stuff is true. Like the Mexican-American War and the United States, yeah, I mean, the U.S. is well-documented in its imperialistic, you know, colonial actions what? that doesn't sound so when we took that space that texas territory and the conflict was there it was just you know the united states versus uh, not the united a states. not quite so developed country <laughs> yeah so that stuff is all the native like, america i was constantly looking that stuff up i was like who right. are these people right. right and even all the way stretching out towards the you know the handful of references to poets and novelists and all kinds of historical figures mm -hmm. there's just it's chock full of them and i was constantly looking them up and I didn't realize, especially like the rich heritage of like magical realism in Latin American literature. Yeah. And there's so much. I didn't know that. Which that's, is, that's why Guillermo del Toro plays with it so much. Yeah, specifically, uh, one they mentioned in the second half was Octavio Paz, who wrote The Labyrinth of Solitude. And that's a pretty influential piece in the space. And I was like, I mean, it's amazing how your eyes can be opened. I mean, for me, I, I'm, I love stuff like this, where it's like, the, the average the average audience member viewer is probably just gonna like glaze over that you yeah, know because yeah. they're busy with on their phone or something yeah but those kind of those kinds of things and those are oftentimes slow self-indulgent scenes where you know your your protagonist is just on top of a heap of bodies in the dead of night talking with like I said the historical cameo from Hernan Cortez you know the conquistador the mm -hmm. one who ravaged the continent <laughs> wiped out the native culture and we're literally just having a conversation with him and our our characters talking with him and there's this back and forth yeah, i love that the, mm -hmm. that that kind of thing is so yeah, fascinating to me and i often think like of, yeah. of writing stuff like that on right. my own but right to see it done like that is so cool anyway and the imagery was super cool yeah yeah I that mean, was one of my favorite the scenes. setting is what makes it so cool as yeah. well. Like if it was done in a different movie with a lower budget, it may not have been as cool, but it was cool here. Yeah. I mean, and I could just, I could run through some of the stuff. Sure. Like, yeah, go ahead. They actually use the word directly. This whole, the dreamlike quality of the film, mm -hmm. they reference it. They call it Oniric, which is like Oniromancer, like they call dream in uh, yeah, the yeah. Sandman. Oniric. It is, it is, Oniric is like, Oniric yeah. is dreamlike. And yeah. it's, it's kind of that surrealistic voyage there's so much in this film with like disembodied voices and head talk that yeah. was really interesting. And you can read into that several different ways. Yeah. Um, but as far as what was actually happening, like even in the beginning, I think the second scene in the film is they're pushing Mateo as the baby. They're pushing it back into the mother because it's not ready to come out yet. And so I was thinking initially, like, is it talking about the baby? But then you realize by the end of the film, it's the parents who are not ready to let go yet of the child. Yes. That was so cool. All yes. the stuff about being a good father really resonated with me and his relationship with his father kind of reflecting his relationship with his son. Yeah. That imagery in, it was in there in the bathroom. Yeah. When it was, takes, the, like, it was his adult version of his head yeah. on the child's body. I was like blown away by that imagery. I, and it was so <laughs> simple. Yeah. And, but it was so, it was jarring just enough to be the metaphors understood immediately. Yeah. That's, that's one of the parts of magical realism that is so interesting is it's accepted and understood immediately. The uncanny quality of it is fascinating. Yeah. Like it's so many big directors would just not do that. Yeah. But Iñárritu went the extra mile in this film to make things uh, both uncomfortable and like literally and also yeah. just so bizarre. Yeah. And that was so fascinating and refreshing. Yeah. So it's Silverio's head and he's looking up at his dad you know, he's a grown man, mm -hmm. but he's on you know, his, a grown man's head in a child's body. And then he's <laughs> yeah. looking up at his dad, who's a lot taller than him. And they're having an interaction. And I, I was just like, oh my gosh, I, w I wasn't even at a certain point. I just stopped paying attention to what they were saying. Cause I was, it hit me like that, that really had an effect on me. And I've never seen something quite like that before. Yeah. Uh, especially done so uh, successfully. I think that's a big credit to the script, not just in the execution, but like the things they're saying, the dialogue between the two characters. It's really fascinating to see uh -huh. Silverio's whatever Silverio. they, they pronounce his name in a very it's Silverio particular way. But it's his Silverio, his um, response to his father and his reaction to his father is really interesting because it's deferential, it's loving, but it's also and I, it makes me think of all the things you've told me uh, over the years about like 
what a nurturing relationship is between like a parent and a child. And there are clearly things lacking from that relationship. And Saverio mm-hmm. even says as much, but there's still this bond and this affection. But there's then there's also like, you know, the generational rift between like um, what it is to be a man. And they, they talk a couple times in the film, especially in reference to the mother as well, about like, oh, the, the dad doesn't like to dance because it's not, you know, the manly thing to do. Yeah. Little things like that that kind of texture this, all these relationships. It's really, really interesting. Right. The first thing that really caught my attention for like, uh, some deeper, some deeper things that were kind of more readily accessible was the talk show scene, the nightmare. I call it the talk show nightmare, where he get, he shows up in Luis's yeah talk show, even though he's not really there. He's there in his head, and yeah. he's running through Luis, basically calling out him for betraying his country, the Mexican people, and also this is where you start to see shades of his imposter syndrome, which is also you know very relatable, not just yeah. for me, but for many people, for everyone that lives on planet Earth, I think. Yeah, except for the the biggest narcissists, and that's also where you start to see the. Uh, I don't think Elon Musk has probably. <laughs> Man's living on another planet, yeah. not Mars. We're not there yet, but <laughs> he's trying. Yeah, he's trying to get there. <laughs> but um, and this is also where you start to get the impression of Inyaritu's like mm-hmm. um, Silver Silverio is like uh, an analogy or an analog for him for him yeah. and his impression right. of all the things he's going through in his life and his career and his family, and then one of my favorite parts thematic points on this uh, this film is the critique i call it of the neoliberal intellectual and they actually say something along those lines verbatim when yeah. luis is i think it's in the exchange afterwards between luis and uh, silverio but such a great call out because the whole film and i've seen a lot of people respond to this in a similar way there's not really a denouncing of silverio's mentality and lifestyle but there is like this kind of underhanded criticism i think of these two warring factions, right? You have the sellout, you have Luis who's like given everything just to be this person. And then he's like completely soulless. And then Silverio, who is a very artistic and soulful person, but he's also like, there's this kind of um, latent egocentric kind of narcissistic tendency here. And he's in his own way, neglecting so many things about the world and his loved ones. And it's a really fascinating back and forth when they're arguing with each other and like calling each other out. But no one's necessarily in the right and no one's entirely in the wrong. So that was really cool. The idea with his work, his journalism and his documentary, docufiction, was a fascinating perspective on subliminal intent Mm -hmm. is what I call it when like Silverio's like being called out for like what he's really doing, what he's trying to do. Yeah. And that's why I mentioned like, is this really just a vanity play when he's doing these things? Right. And he's because he mentions directly too. He's like, I do these things for recognition and for acclaim. And when I get these things, and then it's like he hates himself for it, and he's like criticizing himself. And he goes into his shell and he's hiding, and everyone's like just looking at him like this is ridiculous. <laughs> Even his wife, right? Yeah, that's. And then they get into the the whole desert scene where he's. They show his documentary of the people. I think they were moving, trying to move across the border or something. And that's where they mentioned the Mexican tendency to kind of, I, I call it a cultural coping mechanism where there's, they invent these triumphant myths to cover their depressing history and truths. Like the Jews. <laughs> it, well, it happens to every culture, nation that isn't, yeah, yeah. you know, oppressed, wildly, you know, oppressed, <laughs> whatever you want to call it, the United States. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, we, we kind of probably do things similar in our own way. I love the conversation on the subjectivity of art. And the way people can look at things uh, differently, even though it's the same piece, you know, you know, they deal with the absurdity of life, uh, the inanity of life, the muddy art and ideals because of grief. They talk about provincialism. They use that word a lot, provincial, talking about patriotism and nationalism, jingoism. Right. Especially in in like, there's the United States, which is obviously that thing but then also other countries in response to that thing like mexico in response to the united states yes uh the critique of modern corporate trends like the news fed talk show Mm -hmm. and being a sellout it hits parents aging and illness you know his mother's suffering from i think some kind of dementia yeah and that was terribly sad yeah then afterwards there's that scene where everyone starts dropping in the city and it leads into the night encounter with cortez yeah and that's, again, talking about, like, the ravaging of the continent and the country and the history right. of it. Right. It's very, not just historically, but also very literally in today's context because of the cartels. And the, the woman who drops is literally saying, I'm missing, because she's being taken and she just disappears. 
But what's really fascinating about that is like the the response from the other bystanders on the street and how he's basically like <laughs> he doesn't give a fuck and he's just moving on and uh it's very callous and it's strange because that happens a couple times in the film where there's like another perspective where it's like right just moving on yeah you just keep going yeah despite these things happening um yep the heap of bodies the encounter with cortez which is like just quoting a bunch of uh literature oh how funny was it that amazon bought baja california in the <laughs> film that was great yeah and then they released Super their funny. baby into the sea like a turtle dude that was one of my other favorite things. Um, so crazy. <laughs> it was weird as hell, but but the I just loved that we got a moment where you see the character overcome one of their deepest traumas. Yeah, as a family too. As a family, yeah. That was a really beautiful moment and weird as fuck and so weird. Yeah. And then it, you, then it cuts and you then you see her pour over the the uh, vase and there's ash in it, you know. And mm-hmm. so you you know what is actually yeah. happening. It gives you enough that you're, yeah. you're clued in yeah. if you're paying attention. So it's not just a weird little fetus crawling to the sea like a turtle. It's, you know, it's they're dumping the ashes in the ocean. <laughs> yeah. And then it closes in the last 30 minutes with just the reveal that he's in the coma. And, well, there's a lot of imagery there. So, okay, this is where the thing that I am interested in really comes into play. Because Birdman does something similar, and not many people know this or talk about it. But Birdman opens on a shot. The very first shot you see is somebody laying down on a beach with jellyfish around them. Really? Yes. It's the very first thing you see. And then as you go throughout the film, you're following Michael Keaton's character all around. He's doing all this crazy stuff. He's kind of a forgotten actor, just blah, blah, blah. And then... You find out he has a relation. He has a talk with his ex-wife, I think, and you find out that he almost died on the beach because he like ran into like a huge bunch of jellyfish or something and got stung and <laughs> and like almost died. And then the story goes on in the movie, and then you see him at a certain point. He ends up in the hospital, and then he flies out the window like a bird. That's how the movie ends. What I think Birdman was about is this same exact thing that Bardo's doing. Where it's like you're seeing your life flash before your eyes and you're you're saying goodbye, you're greeting everyone that you've ever really known and loved, and you're saying goodbye to them all at the same time. And it all takes place in Birdman within this playhouse and a little bit outside the playhouse and in the hospital at the end. <laughs> but I think that's what happens. I think he I think what is actually happening is he dies on the beach because of the jellyfish thing in the very beginning shot. And then you watch the rest of the movie that that's the, the whole dream. movie is. Yeah. But no, I've never heard that before from anyone. Really? Interpret it that way. There, there might be a couple of video essays on YouTube if you do like deep dives into like people that pop up on Reddit and be like, dude, you ever seen Birdman before? <laughs> like that kind of thing. Yeah. But I've never heard anyone talk about it the way that I have when I'm like, no one has put that together or thought that, oh, that I've ever talked to. So, and your E2 does the same exact thing can't remember how revenant starts but it's the same exact thing here in bardo as well it starts off with the shot which is like i was absolutely captivated by because i have had this dream and it starts off in this dreamlike state all you see is pov uh you're looking out at an endless desert horizon and you it's almost like the sun is setting so the shadow is super long in front of you so you know that there's a, a person standing there and you are that person so that's the perspective and this person kind of stops hesitates begins to run and jumps kind of like the hulk or superman or something and flies in the air and you see the shadow lift off the ground it's almost like a camera is like mounted on your head or your chest like a gopro camera or something mm-hmm. and then you fall back down to the earth and then hesitates again begins to run jumps again you fly up again the shadow fall and you see this happen for like three or four minutes or something like something absurdly long which i fucking loved because again i have had that exact dream before where i in my dream i'm trying to fly and i can't fly and it's really upsetting but i've never i haven't seen anything that really made me feel like i'm watching one of my dreams come to life in a long time and that that image alone that sequence alone made me feel that way. But then the movie goes on and you see him kind of sitting uh, in a train 
And then all this, he's got like some newts or some like weird salamanders in a. They're called like axolotls or something. Yeah, something, some sort of fish salamander things in a bag. And then, and then he looks down and, and in the train, he's looking at these people across from him. And, and then all of a sudden the bag's broken and, and the, the fish things are on the ground. And then all of a sudden the, the whole train car is filled up with water up to his knees as he's still seated. And you're like, what the hell is happening? And then he like, the movie just goes on and goes on. And then in the end, you see that like what happened is he had a stroke on the train and dropped the bag of weird fish things. But I don't know why he had them. Like he was getting them for his. Yeah, because his son had just before that, when you see it at the end of the film, had just shared his memory about having those fish as a kid. And so oh. he wanted to get them for his son. Gotcha. So gotcha. Like, oh, yeah. So, yeah. And then he rode the train all the way to the last stop because he was like tripping out because he couldn't function he couldn't function because he had had a stroke yeah and then you kind of start to think like wow like how much of what i just watched the last two hours was in his mind potentially while he was having a stroke yeah how much of even him having a stroke is happening currently in the chronology of the film or did it happen in in the beginning or in the middle you never you couldn't you can't really like put it together but there's so many things that take place and occur so many events that happen throughout the course of this film. Yeah. You start putting it all together in your mind and then the movie ends as he's kind of surrounded by his family and he's, he's unconscious. He kind of goes into this, this another desert like place. And this very much mirrors Terrence Malick's tree of life. Cause the same exact sequence happens in that movie where the protagonist is walking and then he's all of a sudden surrounded by people that he knows and loves and, he starts kind of talking and smiling at each other and stuff. And then what the thing that this movie did that tree of life didn't was had his actual family kind of run up and like try to get him to stop from continuing on. Um, which I think was a metaphor for them surrounding his bed, you know, while he's unconscious, but then he continues on. And then the movie ends with the same shot as the beginning where he's running and jumping and running and jumping and flying and then falling back down. And and then it ends that way. And I don't know what to think as far as like maybe he's trying to run and jump his way back toward his family. Maybe he is having a hard time letting go or moving on or transcending to the next place that he would go post-mortem. I don't know. I don't know what you kind of can just believe what you want to believe there as far as whether he dies or not. But, but, and it's less, it's less of the, uh, seeing your life flash before your eyes as much as I think Birdman is. I think Birdman is actually a more glaring depiction of that. But here in Bardo, the image of jumping up and falling back down to earth and trying to like, I don't know, achieve something or or reach something that you can't really reach. When the movie was over, I looked up what the hell Bardo meant. Cause when I, when I started the film, I was like, Oh, it's probably his name. Yeah. Um, and I looked it up, and it talks about Bardo means mm-hmm. being in a space between places, not really being able to move on to the next place or space or something like that. Yeah, well, I, more specifically, I think it's a Buddhist term for what roughly is purgatory. Yes, or, or uh, like a limbo or liminal space. My read on that was and I different. That's interesting. Well, no, I was just I was just saying. Well, I think everyone will have a different interpretation. This is my own interpretation. But the thing about that, though, is that being in limbo and not being able to move on is just one of the most fascinating things to me personally. Mm-hmm. And stories about people not being able to let go. Yeah. It's just like what I love so much about the whale oh. and, and the Moby Dick analogy of like trying to achieve this thing that you, you never will actually be able to achieve and not being able to let go of the thing that is holding you down. Yeah. Right. Not being able to reach or excel or jump high enough to get to where you're trying to go. And so I love stories like that. And I think that's why Bardo resonated with me so much. I also had a sneak peek into Bardo. This is my only like claim to fame here is I actually worked on this movie. (gasps) What? Uh, Back when it was called Limbo. (laughs) Yeah. Which is, I guess, the same thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nice, man. 
Yeah. Is that all you can say? Well, <laughs> did you sign an NDA? No, I didn't. Well, technically, we I guess we did sign an NDA, but our company, Your ex. the IMAX company that I used to work for that gave stories for, talked to Inuri too. What? Yeah. But we, we have a, oh, the, the company that, <laughs> we, we had a scanner or have a scanner that scans film faster than most other scanners. And so we worked out a deal with Inuri too that he was initially shooting this, this movie on film. Mm-hmm. to take in the dailies and scan everything. So I was one of the two people for like three or four weeks, a couple of Decembers ago that were taking in the dailies from this film and scanning them in to digital space and, and sending them off to in your YouTube. And you said you recognized some of those frames. Oh yeah. Um, the stuff that I scanned that I recognized the most was all the hospital stuff in the beginning. Yeah. With him leaning his head against the wall, her in the hospital room. Obviously, I had no idea what was going on. And there was a CG baby, you know. (laughs) But that wasn't there. But, and then all the stuff in the first encounter with him and his wife where they're kind of chasing each other around the apartment. Yeah. I watched, I scanned most of that stuff. It was a trip. And a couple other parts around the apartment. That's all the stuff that I scanned. And then at a certain point... Alejandro and Yuta decided to not shoot on film anymore, and he just decided to shoot digital for the rest of it. Yeah, there was some drama around the film. Yeah. I mean, this is unrelated, I guess. Yeah. But, but that's when I stopped working on it. But I did I did technically work on this movie, which is pretty crazy. Yeah. You think you're in the credits? I don't think so. I'd be shocked if I look. I guess I should look. It just occurred to me. Yeah. Cool, man. Yeah. But yeah, I so I knew back then it was called Limbo. Limbo. And so I was like, oh, it's probably going to be about being in limbo both metaphorically and existentially literally so such a great concept like you said for for a movie the unreachable yeah but so how did you interpret it oh i thought he found closure yeah because uh you know i i for sure thought he found closure so well when he when he leaps off into the 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 horizon yeah the horizon i was just like oh he's (laughs) i didn't really take it one way or the other but to say that he found peace yeah now because he's in the hereafter thereafter he's after (laughs) he's somewhere because he told his family to go back he's like i can't remember what he said verbatim but he's like go back yeah i'm you know this is where i'm going and you're not here yet so it had not even a bittersweet but just a sweet taste in my Uh mouth at the end even though his family will be sad that he's gone because they they truly cared for him my man was like he was out it was funny though, because some of those those final scenes were like like where they nail his feet to the floor in the oh, presentation of the award. So gnarly! Like clearly, this is not consensual. <laughs> yeah, that was crazy, man. He was he was watching and listening to his daughter speak at his memorial service, basically. Yeah, and that part where the, everyone was clapping, but there was no sound. It was such a trip. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all the all the like I call it the brain talk, and also the disembodied. Yeah. Like voices and stuff in this film were so cool, or the things casting shadows that had no form, all that stuff. Such amazing imagery yeah. and uh, presentation, I guess. Even on a technical level, you're like, I mean, I've never seen anyone do that. Like, especially halfway through a conversation, Silverio will just stop using his mouth and continue speaking with his yes. mind. Such a such. And not a only that, but his wife will address it and say, "Stop doing that because yeah, yeah. it's fucking annoying." Yeah, I'm I just for- like, totally Holy. forgot about that. Yeah, it. I'm like, this is incredible. Yeah. Like, this is perfect impressionistic yeah art film yeah you know yeah yeah i i was like i want to watch this again there's there's so much there's so much good about it yeah. like it's it's overwhelmingly was it is it nominated for best picture no it's not not no, at all not even a little bit but it just that's why i'm thinking like i mean obviously it's we have is, opinions about stuff like this yes but it's like we're taking crazy pills yeah <laughs> yeah yeah but that's why i mentioned the subjectivity of art because this thing is like really reaching yeah and it's obviously self-indulgent in time so yeah. it can't really compare yeah i mean i wouldn't have nominated it for top 10 but i would have put this i was going to mention this i haven't said this yet to, even to you Ooh, this might go in my top 10 of 2022 yeah i i mean i don't think it would be in my top 10 well it's a uh, tough call i was gonna say it might be like in my permanent 11th spot <laughs> the retainer yeah <laughs> well no i'll be like so that if means, we need the eleventh man, it's, it's knocking out your way of water. Thank God, it's not. Wa- it's it's not. It, well, it, You're well, saying I, way of water is better. Than I this? think I think of my top ten as like best in slot. Way of water is a totally different slot. film. Best in slot. Yeah, 
it the Bardo would have to kick out a film that's occupying its its role. You know, it's same space as which, the impression. What's so? Where was it? Where would it sit? I don't know. Four, five, six. No. Seven. Somewhere in there. I don't know. I'd have to think about it. But I, I really, I was shocked by how much I love this film. Maybe I just didn't know enough about it. But I was like, I, I gotta like clue in on this again because I feel like what you need to do now is watch Birdman. Yeah, I want to. It's good. And I'd like to watch his other films too because he's made several. And it feels. I love this kind of thing where a director, and I think of Denny as well, because he's made several French films before he started making English language films. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I got to know what this director was doing in his formative years, right? Because to end up in this place is fascinating. Right. You know, where you've broken form and you're doing things like this, especially something as introspective as this, you know, where you're, you're the self insert and you're analyzing yourself in a way that is crazy and not even like fable man's where it's like very grounded. Yeah. This is just crazy. So it makes me, it makes me want to go watch his other films. Yeah. He's clearly got a lot to say yeah. as a director and I'm so curious what he's going to do next. You know, yeah. I've, I've, it's funny cause I've read some excerpts from interviews and stuff. And it's funny how he'll say things that are like directly line for line parts of the script of this film, like commentary on his art. He's this, got kind of a, a David Lynch kind of thing where he doesn't like really answer the question, but he gives you some artistic answer. Uh, maybe. What I mean is just that like everything in this film, it bleeds in Yeritu's way of thinking mm-hmm. and his, his perspective. Right. And that, that kind of purity, even if it is... Um, you know, bloated. Those usually make for the best films, man. Yeah. That's why it's fascinating it's like, to, to us. <laughs> no, for sure. Yeah. I, I, but like usually the best movies are the ones that bleed like a, a soul vision or a single person's perspective. Mm-hmm. And it, it's so apparent when you view it that like, it's like, wow, no one else could have made this. That's what I meant when I said no one else could have made Babylon, but Damien Chazelle, other people could have directed the same story, the same script. But no one could have made it like that, you know? Yeah. So yeah, there's a passion that bleeds. It, it's a singular. I love how you just phrased it. <laughs> it it's like it bleeds his perspective. Yeah. You know, it's that sole singular perspective, that one person. Mr. Rogers says it all the time. No one else can do what you do. Mm. That's that's nice. Because <laughs> no one else is like you. Yeah. I'm watching it in the mornings with my daughters and I'm thinking... No one, no one else can do what I can do. Well, I was, I was actually going to bring up that at the end. <laughs> Thank as you, kind Fred. Of, <laughs> thanks, Mister R. Yeah, I like as a, as a takeaway, as a closing remark. That was part of what I took away from the film was that sense of embracing your individuality. Yeah. You know, we've seen a lot of stories kind of present that idea in the last year. But also on that same note, like a big part of this film was about letting go. It's about surrendering to the absurdity of life. And that's something you've tried to nail through my brain over the course of our relationship, which is you just got to like not Amen. be so tense all the time. Amen, sister. Just let go. Amen, sister. You know, because it's all, it's crazy. Life is crazy. Preach. Life is absurd or... 100%. Strange. And I'm living that really a, resonated with me. So. Yeah, I'm living in a dream. <laughs> you but, just have to be... So it's inspiring. This movie's inspiring It is inspiring. You. I yeah. absolutely took it as a as an uplifting, inspiring thing. That's wonderful. Thing. I'm so glad that you took it like, that way. Like the entire way through, and I don't know if that's just me, <laughs> but this whole film, I was like, I was just inspired. And that's why people watch movies. And yeah. You never know. You never know when a movie's going to land on you like this, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's what makes... I mean, it, that's what makes life worth living is like just encountering something so amazing and awe-inspiring when you least expect it. And it also is what makes movies so amazing just in life. Just It's art, the, man. It is art. It's, it's pure art, especially the best ones. Yeah. Yeah. So with that being said, <laughs> we'll play a track from the scorist. Yeah. Inyiritu, I don't know his history with music, but he co-produced the score with Bryce Desner. Wow. Who has worked on many things that we love, including Sufjan's Planetarium. Yeah. He is a band member in The National, which I adore. Yeah. Fascinating because Inyiritu uh, is apparently a very musical man. And, you know. I think he did stuff for his last films too, right? Probably. Yeah. Well, 
there Alvinodo or someone scored uh, The Revenant, but I don't know about Birdman, so maybe. Okay. Well, here's a track. Yeah. And if you're interested in artistic, magical, realism, pure. <laughs> Latin American La- culture. Latin American. <laughs> history lesson, but also. Artistic filmmaking. A fever dream. Yeah. <laughs> Check out this film. Bardo, a false chronicle of a handful of truths. Or Limbo, if you were me two years ago. <laughs>